In this weekend's episode, three segments from this past week's Washington Journal. First, a conversation with consumer advocate, corporate critic, and four-time presidential candidate Ralph Nader, who celebrated his 90th birthday earlier this week. Then we visit with pollster, author, and communications strategist Frank Luntz to talk about his continued work to try to bridge the political divide in the country. Plus, MSNBC host Joy Reid discusses her book, Medgar and Murley, Medgar Evers and the Love Story That Awakened America. Hi, it's John from C-SPAN. Imagine 45 years ago, when there were just a handful of television networks, C-SPAN first went on the air, bringing an unfiltered view of government directly to America's living rooms. No spin, no commentary, just pure democracy in action. And it's Janae from C-SPAN. It was a bold experiment. We finally had a front row seat to Congress, the White House, and the campaign trail, all without government funding. As we celebrate 45 years and a legacy of unfiltered access, we ask for your support of a donation in honor of over four decades of service. Your gift, no matter how big or small, will help maintain this vital resource for access to the democratic process. And you can help ensure another 45 years of witnessing history unfold and empowering citizens to be informed and engaged in the political process. Visit cspan.org slash donate today and join our 45th anniversary campaign. Thanks for supporting C-SPAN, your unfiltered view of government. Visit cspan.org slash donate today to make your gift of support. Thanks. Now, Ralph Nader, on his recent 90th birthday, his newspaper, The Capitol Hill Citizen, and whether this is the year a third-party candidate can break through the two-party system. Well, you celebrated your 90th birthday earlier this week. Happy birthday. How did you celebrate? Thank you. Uh, By working, try to advance justice in the country for everybody, uh, regardless of their political labels. Well, Mr. Nader, in addition to uh, writing books, you've got a... uh uh, a publication. It's called Capitol Hill Citizen. I, I have it here. Uh, we can uh, discuss what's in it, but it's it's print only. And I'm curious, before we talk about the actual content in it, why only print? Why not go digital? Well, because we, we've, we have very good uh, experience with print only. People uh, tell us that they love to hold the newspaper in their own hand, no distractions, no diversions, no ads, no clutter. Uh, and we'd rather have a serious audience than uh, a larger audience that just scrolls through it. Our experience online, like so many other people, has not been good when we put out our reports and other uh, materials because there's too much clutter. It's overload. And so we're, we're working on this. And the CapitalCitizen.com, by the way, uh, this newspaper uh, has a letters to the editor which have interesting elaborations about why they like a print newspaper. They are going to Capitol Citizen and ordering copies for libraries and their discussion group. And there's no newspaper like this. Seven editions have come out, Mimi. This one can be obtained by a donation of $5 or more and go to CapitolHillCitizen.com. And you'll get it mailed immediately, first class. And if you want more copies, you can uh, order more copies for a donation of $5 or more. And the the lead article uh, I'm privileged to write is on uh, Congress 
as a weapon of mass destruction, collectively. Yep, I, I have that here. The headline is this, collectively, Congress is a weapon of mass destruction. What do you mean by that? What I mean is, although there's some really good people in Congress, collectively as a body, it's a gridlock uh, and it's, a, it's up for sale or rent to all the campaign finance money that's coming in that C-SPAN has covered events for. So the first uh, destruction of democracy itself, Congress is supposed to represent we the people. It's not supposed to represent the, the corporations like the oil and gas and banking, insurance, and other corporations who pump money through their packs into both parties' coffers. It's also a destruction of peace. It has allowed the uh, elaboration of wars of empire without being declared, just pumping money. Uh, the destruction of Iraq has took over uh, a million uh, lives and pulverized that society. Uh, they overreacted in Afghanistan and uh, destroyed so much of that country. Libya uh, supported the war on Yemen. Uh, it, it just keeps going. The the Congress has clearly destroyed the progressive tax system, filling it with endless complexity loopholes for special interests to avoid and evade taxes. They've even destroyed uh, maybe Medicare and Medicaid by turning it over to health insurance contractors, uh, not just to administer these programs, but actually to have uh, gouging policies that deny benefits and put people in narrow uh, networks and, and other subversions of the original concept of Medicare uh, for the, for the elderly, elderly as a government program. And also they've, uh, they've destroyed their own capacity to function. They've defunded the Office of Technology Assessment starting 1995, uh, where they, they've eliminated the technical advice on things like military technology, food technology, AI, uh, all kinds of other technologies that they need impartial advice for. And people ought to realize this. They, they've destroyed our freedom of contract by letting these companies tie us up in this fine print that many people can't even read uh, when they go into the credit economy or they sign a landlord's lease or whatever. Very, very one-sided. So, so Mr. Nader, of, Mr. Nader, what needs to happen? How do you fix Congress? Excellent question. One is, and this is what's written up in the Capitol Hill Citizen, people back home have got to summon uh, with their own agenda members of Congress to town meetings back home, which I believe would be covered by C-SPAN now, I guess, in its 45th year. Uh, there's a lot of left-right support uh, for a, a living wage, uh, for cracking down on corporate crooks, breaking up big monopolies, getting rid of government waste and corruption, uh, changing the tax system. So if people get petitions, and my guess is 500 clearly written signatures on petitions to a member of the House would bring the representative to the town meeting in your area. A thousand would bring senators, sometimes less, back to your town meeting where you present the agenda and they listen to you and go back with the instructions of we the people. So the purpose of the capital citizen is to create 
these kinds of Capitol Hill citizens back home because the Constitution starts with we the people, not we the Congress or we the corporation. And so uh, we're appealing to conservative and liberal families who have common interests back home where they live, work, and raise their families. All this divide-and-rule stuff by the two major parties for their own advantage uh, begins to dissipate uh, because these families want the same thing. They want good schools. They want good public services, good roads, bridges, public uh, transit, clean air, clean water. And that's what this uh, CapitalCitizen.com is all about. And Mr. Nader, I want to ask you about the presidential election happening this year. Um, you know, polls are showing that there are a lot of people um, not happy with the, the two major candidates who are likely go going to be facing off again. Is this the year for a third party candidate, given your history of, of having uh, run several times for president as a, as a third party candidate? Mimi, I think every year is a, a year for more voices and choices for the voters in this country. Uh, poll after poll shows over 60 percent of the people want a viable third party. The problem is that they find themselves at election time unable uh, to vote for a third party because the system with winner-take-all, electoral college, uh, gerrymandering, uh, draws them into uh, feeling that only one of two candidates can win, Republican uh, or Democrat. But I look at, over the history of third parties. The, the first party against slavery was the Liberty Party in 1840, and the small parties for the women's right to vote in decades after that, and the Farmer Party, and the Workers' Party, and the People's Party. And so many things we accept today, uh, the blessings of today, the Social Security, unemployment tax, a progressive tax, 40-hour week, ability to form unions, all started with third parties before they were picked up by a major party, even though third parties never won a national election. Well, well speaking think, of third, third uh, the party... The capital citizen gives a, a voice to these people. Well, speaking of third party, RFK Jr. Um, has said that he will not bow out of the 2024 race, even if polling shows that he would be a potential spoiler for President Biden. Um, you know, you were criticized, obviously, back in 2000 for uh, being a spoiler for... Uh, um, uh, for Wait a minute. Uh, Mimi, uh, spoiler is a politically bigoted word when it's directed only to third parties. Uh, look, we all have a right equal under the Constitution to run for public office, local, state, and national. Therefore, we're all trying to get votes from one another. Therefore, we're either all spoilers of one another or none of us are spoilers. So I reject that phrase, uh, spoilers. And I think that good ideas come from uh, small candidates. For example, uh, there's not going to be any presidential debates because the Republican National Committee is pulled out and Trump doesn't want it. Uh, so that leaves a vacuum. No presidential debates? Uh, uh, so here's my idea. There are six states that are swing states, Nevada, Arizona, Georgia, Pennsylvania, uh, Michigan, Wisconsin. The major cities in those states could invite the candidates for presidential debates. Who doesn't want to debate in their city? The Chamber of Commerce, unions, civic groups, town hall. They all want presidential debates because all the media coverage they get. So I've written to the mayors of these cities and, and ask them uh, 
why don't you appoint a, a, a multi-supported citizens committee inviting the candidates to presidential base after the national conventions are over? Uh, I got a response from the mayor of Milwaukee. He's considering it. But the League of Women Voters, the Urban League, the unions, the neighborhood groups, uh, they, they'll all w- want to get together. And that way we can have questions asked regionally, questions that are often never asked by the choreographed presidential debates. Now, you see, that idea does not come from the two major parties. It comes from the grassroots. And that's why uh, we want people to to read our effort here in journalism, uh, which sort of complements C-SPAN. C-SPAN covers the official proceedings of Congress, floor debates and committees, and I was a supporter of Brian Lamb way back when he started this wonderful institution. And the Capitol Citizen it, it covers unofficial journalism. Like most people don't know, Congress, they're not printing any hearings anymore. Yeah, the libraries are not getting printed hearings of committee uh, reports anymore. And, and nobody's doing anything about that. So go, go to CapitalCitizen.com, uh, get, get your copies spread the word, and reassert yourself, because they work for you, people. Members of Congress, all 535, work for you. And you've got to make sure they work on your behalf, and not on behalf of a few hundred giant corporations who've turned Capitol Hill into a pile of campaign cash. And Mr. Nader, if we can go back to the the presidential uh, election, you know, age is uh, a factor for both candidates, uh, President Biden and uh, President Trump. You're 90 years old now. What's your view on, you know, how old is too old to serve as president? Well, it depends on the person, doesn't it, Amy? Mimi, excuse me, it depends on the person. Uh, You know, some people have infirmities that are not their fault. Uh, Some people have a lucky choice of parents and and have good genes. Some people don't take care of themselves, uh, and it affects their mental and physical uh, performance. Uh, So it, it shouldn't be just on the number of years people have. It should be on whether they're functioning, uh, not just in terms of cognitive uh, capacity, but in terms of whether they're telling the truth, whether they stand for the people, uh, whether they want to give voice to the people, whether they want to have a real democratic society and not a plutocracy where the few decide for the many. That was consumer advocate, author, and four-time presidential candidate Ralph Nader. Next, pollster, author, and communications strategist Frank Luntz discusses what his focus groups are saying about the political mood in the country. We're going to have a fascinating election campaign. I'm concerned about the tone and the demeanor of it. I'm concerned about how we each relate to each other. And I'm listening to to C-SPAN often in the mornings. And it's a little bit quieter in the mornings than it is in the evenings. But three things that stand out to me. Number one is that there's no hesitation, no doubt whatsoever, that it's going to be Joe Biden versus Donald Trump. Uh, any any thoughts of someone coming in late, it's just not going to happen. Second is that there is discontent on both sides. That the fact that Haley, Nikki Haley, the governor of South Carolina, does not have a chance of taking the nomination, and yet she's still getting a sizable vote. 
and on the Democratic side, the fact that more than 100,000 people voted uncommitted as a way to express their displeasure with Joe Biden is significant. The typical undeclared vote is about 20,000 in Michigan. When you get five times the number, I'm paying attention. And third, that the turnout was high. And I really do think that we're going to set yet another record for turnout in 2024 as Americans want to have their voices heard. Who, who should be more concerned here in what they saw in their column last night? Uh, Joe Biden with 100,000 uncommitted or Donald Trump looking at Nikki Haley's almost 300,000 votes that she gained, even though he won by over 40 percent? Uh, they both should be. And, and I never duck a question. I'll explain why. Union voters, union households are moving Republican in literally record numbers. And that's going to be important in a state like Michigan. Latino voters, Hispanic voters are doing the same. And it's possible that a Republican could get 45, even approaching 50 percent of the Latino vote. Now, on the Democratic side, suburban voters in particularly women, particularly upper middle class that normally vote Republican don't like Donald Trump. And they're moving towards the Democrats, towards Joe Biden. So we've got this shifting that's going on that is very significant. It's happening in all these swing states. And quite frankly, to give you voters, to give you viewers an idea of just how few votes are going to determine this election, there are only nine states that are truly up for grabs and only about 5% of the electorate that's shifting back and forth. When you combine those two, we are about to spend billions of dollars in negative advertising for only 2% of Americans. And frankly, I'm, I'm very concerned about the consequences of that. In that advertising, how much is that going to be age versus indictments or abortion v. border? Is it, is it that simple? Are those the messages that viewers should be prepared to be hit on again and again and again? Yes. If I was taking notes, which I should be, but I'm focused on the viewers, that's you just summarized it in a way that, geez, you just summarized it in a way that they cannot do on cable news. You said in four seconds what takes them two minutes to say, but you got it dead on. In terms of the division in this country, that you, you started by saying it's something you're concerned about. Obviously, C-SPAN viewers know that you've been polling people for a long time. Why is this one in particular concerning? What's, what's different in the division that you were talking about? So if you've got the slides, I'll go into it if you've got it to show viewers. Sure. We asked a question. It's, I believe this is the best question I have asked as a pollster, maybe in my career. <clears throat> I asked the American people, do you feel invested in your country and its future? And two thirds said yes, which is not a great number. It means that one third really doesn't care what happens to America, what happens to the people around them. And, and as you're of, as you're explaining this, and I'm showing the viewers that your slide, uh, explain uh, where they should be looking on this slide. You obviously know these slides. The question: Do you consider yourself invested in America? Total: 66 percent. Yes. Democrats at 71 percent. Republicans at 71 percent. Explain why that is. No partisanship. If you're a Republican, you're invested in your country. If you're a Democrat, you're invested in your country. The people who are least likely to be invested in their country are independents who have chosen to stay outside the political process, chosen to stay outside the partisanship, in some cases because they reject 
Republicans and Democrats in other cases, it's that they simply don't care. But it's the bottom set of numbers that just blew me away. And I literally, I mean this, when I saw these results come back, I started pacing. And it was hard for me to write the analysis. Just 31% of Americans, and even fewer among Republicans, believe their country is invested in them and their future. And that's a complete rejection of the political process, a belief that the people in Washington aren't listening, don't care, a sense of denial and betrayal. And it just, it completely freaked me out, to be blunt. I know that by using those words, memes are going to be created. See, Frank Lund's freaked out. But that's that's my language. And that's what happened. What do you say? Second, what do ahead. you say to those viewers who say, well, Americans throughout history haven't felt that their country is invested in them? How different do you think those numbers are, that line that concerns you from 20 years ago, 60 years ago? My belief is that it's that it's an all time high. This country created a vaccine that saved millions of lives. This country invested in education, invested in roads and bridges and highways. Some investments Republicans like, some investments Democrats like. This country every day asks of us our tax dollars and then gives us back, hopefully. And I understand how people feel that they're not getting their money's worth. I understand that people don't feel that government is efficient, effective, and accountable. I get that. But overall, when I visit the Lincoln Memorial, when I see the, the uh, Jefferson Memorial, the Washington Monument, when I see the Smithsonian, I think of how much this country has accomplished. And truthfully, it has nothing to do with government. It has to do with this commitment, the flag, this, the Statue of Liberty, the, the Star Spangled Banner, who we are as Americans. I'm wearing, I don't know if you can see it, I teach at West Point now. And these young men and women are the best that America has to offer. And I believe that our country is invested in them. I believe our country is invested. It may not do it well. As I said, it may not do it efficiently. But when the public says, I don't believe it anymore. I don't accept it anymore. We are least likely to trust the media than ever before. We are least likely to trust our politicians than ever before. We are least likely to have faith in the future than ever before. When I see these, it makes me very concerned about the future. That was Frank Luntz, pollster, author, and communications strategist. Finally, MSNBC host and political analyst Joy Reid discusses her new book, Medgar and Murley, Medgar Evers and the Love Story That Awakened America. So remind us about Medgar Evers and what he did. So Medgar Evers was the first field secretary, statewide field secretary for the NAACP in the state of Mississippi. So if you think about Vernon Jordan, who was doing that same job in Georgia, he was doing the same job in Mississippi, investigating the deaths and lynchings of black people, uh, ostensibly signing black folks up for NAACP memberships and registering folks to vote. And you've said that you feel that Medgar Evers has been given a short shift uh, in American history. Why so? And why do you think that happened? Absolutely. I mean, if you think about the job that he was doing, he was doing the kind of activism that Dr. King was doing, for instance, in states like Alabama and that John Lewis was doing in places like Georgia. Um, and, but he was doing it in Mississippi. 
which was the most dangerous place to be black in America, the highest number of per capita lynchings, the most violent version of the Klan, um, the most aggressive Klan, the most aggressive white citizens councils, and a state-run spy agency called the Sovereignty Commission that went into action after Brown v. Board. So he was doing it under tremendous duress and under tremendous pressure, even from the NAACP, which didn't agree with activism in the streets. They wanted to fight in the courts. So the pressures he was under, the amount of violence that he faced in that state was unprecedented for any civil rights activist. And so I think he really should get a greater mention. James Baldwin said the great three civil rights leaders were Medgar, Martin, and Malcolm. And tell us about this love story now between uh, Medgar and Merle Evers um, that actually prompted you to write this book. Yeah, I mean, the thing is, is that these leaders, people like Dr. King, people like Malcolm X, people like Medgar Evers, couldn't have done the work they were doing without the support uh, and help of their spouses. Um, their wives were 1950s housewives, literally, were the chief cook and bottle washer. They were the literal secretary in the case of Merle Evers. She was his secretary actually uh, when he was uh, NAACP field secretary. And prior to that, um, she was the person he's bouncing his speeches off of. And she's also the person having to maintain the household while he's doing the dangerous work he's doing. She's the one worrying whether he's coming home at night. Um, she's doing all of the things to be a complete partner and supporter in this civil rights work. And then when he died, just as when Malcolm and Martin, uh, Dr. King died, she's the one who had to carry his legacy, to write his legacy into the history books. And that was the job that she un uh, had to take on after he was gone. And, and before his murder, I mean, she was the one getting those death threats Absolutely. at home when he was out doing his work That's right. with her little kids at home. Absolutely. I mean, it, this was dangerous work, not just for these men, but for their families. The death threats didn't just stop it. I'm going to kill you. It was, I'm going to kill your wife. I'm going to blow up your house. I'm going to kill your kids. And it was constant. Every time she picked up the phone, she didn't know whether it was a black person in distress or whether it was a Klansman threatening to murder her and her family. And Medgar Evers served overseas in uh, World War II. So talk about his service and what happened when he came back. Yeah, Medgar Evers uh, followed his big brother. He was very close to his older brother, Charles. Charles enlisted before he did, then he enlisted. Uh, as he turned 18, he went off to fight in World War II. He was on the beaches of Normandy on D-Day um, in the Red Ball Express, which was this group of, it was a segregated uh, cadre of Black Transportation Corps. So he was a World War II hero, came home in his uniform, got on the bus to go home to Decatur, Mississippi, and was told to go to the back of the bus. And he said, no, I just fought for my country. I'm not going to do it. He was dragged off the bus, and he says, beaten within an inch of his life, but said he was a different man after that. One of the things he did was immediately stand for his right to vote. He and his brother tried to register to vote in the state of Mississippi in a county where there were literally like zero registered voters among African Americans because of the way that Mississippi kept black people away from the ballot. He was assassinated in uh, 1963 right in front of his house. Can yeah. you tell us what happened um, during that assassination and what um, the immediate aftermath was. Yeah, I mean, you know, Medgar Evers as field secretary was constantly writing to the Kennedy White House, asking for help, saying, send the National Guard here, try to help these folks here that cannot register to vote, that are being terrorized by the Klan and by these citizens' councils. And Kennedy ultimately responds. Um, he promises that he's going to do a civil rights bill, which Medgar had been among those demanding that they do something on a federal level legislatively to solve the fact that Brown v. Board was not being followed by states in the South. They were resisting it by every means necessary. So Kennedy gives this speech on June 11. It's a landmark speech. He does it in prime time. 
And within hours of that speech, just over midnight on June 12th, Megar Evers is coming home from a mass meeting and is assassinated in his own driveway. His wife and his children, who are aged nine, eight, and three, see him and witness him bleeding to death on the carport right in front of them. His neighbor comes out and fires a shot in the air to try to scare away the killer. Um, it's a trauma to the family, a trauma to the country. Um, but it, ultimately, he's assassinated because of his insistence on fighting for just basic civil rights um, and dignity for black people. You have a whole chapter in your book called, quote, The Rules of a Civil Rights Widow. Explain that and what the rules are. Yeah, the How to Be a Civil Rights Widow chapter is actually my favorite chapter in the book because it was my opportunity to really talk about what Merle Evers was facing. You know, she is a 30-year-old woman and a mother of three who has to figure out how do I respond when she is the first national civil rights widow, meaning there had been lots of black women who faced widowhood because their husbands fought for civil rights or simply tried to register to vote, but she's the first one who walked out of her front door after the assassination to Dan Rather and a CBS news crew and a national news crew all staring at her. And she has to decide in that moment, how do I be? You know, how do I look? How am I going to be viewed by America? What do I say? You know, how is my, you have to think about things like, how is my makeup? How is my hair? Am I going to be seen as the angry black woman if I'm as angry as I feel in my heart? If I show that, am I going to be dismissed as just this angry, you know, mad woman? So she had to comport herself in a way that would give dignity to her husband's memory, that would give dignity to herself and her family, even though inside what she felt was absolute rage. But she had to suppress that and present herself in a way that she could make his legacy live on. She's the first widow to have to do that, two years before Malcolm X's widow had to do it, and five years before Coretta Scott King. You've met um, Merle. I did. Tell us about her. So she is a wonderful person. Uh, I interviewed her about half a dozen times for this book, mostly by phone, uh, but then we did this really lengthy interview at her son's house in California uh, where I got to really sit with her and be with her in person. I actually was just with her a couple of days ago uh, at Pomona University, which is her alma mater. And she is just a treasure. She's a national treasure and an icon. She was the first layperson to give uh, the inaugural benediction at a presidential inauguration for President Obama in 2013. Uh, she is a remarkable historic figure who became an NAACP leader in her own right after her husband was assassinated. She ran for office. She ran for Congress in the earlier year of the woman when Shirley Chisholm was also running for president. So she is this historic figure. Um, and one of the things that I did this book for was because I believe that she deserves greater flowers. She deserves to get her flowers while we still have her. She is 90 years young and feisty and amazing, but also that her husband, his legacy does deserve to be put on the same level with Malcolm X and Dr. King. Well, let's hear from her. We've got a, a clip of her speaking from the Lincoln Memorial. Um, <clears throat> on the steps uh, of the Lincoln Memorial, this is at the 50th anniversary of the March on Washington back in 2013. We created a framework, but there is still so much work left to be done. Many of our civil rights leaders, including my husband and Dr. Martin Luther King, were still of an age when they took the lead. With that question in mind, I challenge you to get back to community building. It is your problem. It is our problem. It is our neighborhood. These are our children. You are the parents. But in that same breath, the victory will be a collective one. 
It is with a clear conscience, knowing what we've done and can do, that we will reach that mountaintop and we will overcome. But it will take each and every one of us in unity, in unison, letting those who say that they manage this country of America know that it's the people, it's the voice and the actions of the people that say we must overcome and will eventually say we have overcome because of the involvement of each and every one. That is our challenge today. That was in 2013. What do you yeah. think she would say today? Well, I mean, I, I had a chance to speak with her, um, like I said, about a week ago. And I think what, what, what the, where Miss Murley is in this moment is that it is a shame that we still have to fight some of the basic fights for things like access to our history, um, that we still have to say things like Black Lives Matter and, and defend the idea that Black Lives Matter in the 21st century. Her husband didn't even make it to be 40 years old. He was 37 when he died. Um, and he died for a cause that we're still fighting for. And I think that she believes that's a shame. She's still got a lot of fight in her, as she said. She's still fighting, uh, and she's not going to stop until that more perfect union is won. That was Joy Reid, host of The Readout on MSNBC, on her new book about Medgar and Murley Evers. Hear more interviews from C-SPAN's Washington Journal program on our website, cspan.org, on the C-SPAN Now app, or on C-SPAN television, live every morning from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern.